Wissen Dorfman. I want to read and fight. It's what I was born to do. But one day, I will be a great man. But no man ever ran away with his entrails hanging down to his knees or his head cut off. That's just a fact of life. Ron, c'est vos salut. Païen Est, de Ville Estras, Siam Nad, de l'côté Spesternes. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Welcome to Saga Briefs, where we're looking at the stories behind the sagas. I'm John. And I'm Andy. In our Saga Briefs, we take a topic that we think needs to be examined in a little bit more depth, and then we examine it in a little more depth. Uh, this episode is something of a bridge between our usual interest in the sagas and our annual obsession with the history show Vikings, uh, which recently returned for its fourth season on February 18th in the States. Yeah, we're actually recording this before the new season begins, but everyone listening to this episode, uh, you know, the season's already started, so... Sorry about that. <laughs> we we got to get better at timing these things. We really do. But, uh, you know, I think more than one listener might feel uh, a little frustrated that we're interrupting our coverage of uh, the saga of Finn Bogey the Strong for this uh, long saga brief. Apologies to all you diehard Finn Bogey fans out there. Uh, but this has become something of a saga thing tradition. Indeed it has. And, and, and one we look forward to. I mean, if you've been listening to our show over the last couple of years... You'll know that we're big fans of Ragnar Lothbrok and the Ragnarsons around here. Um, and we tend to get a little excited about the return of the Viking show each year. Well, I mean, can you blame us? There aren't that many opportunities for Old Norse literature scholars to indulge themselves in pop culture. It's really true. I mean, those King Arthur and Robin Hood bastards have had all the luck for the longest time. So <laughs> <laughs> as the new season of Vikings gets underway, we'll return to having John live tweeting during the episodes like he's done in the past. But oh, uh, lucky me. We also like to dedicate an episode of the podcast to a Vikings-related topic at the start of each season. Yeah. Um, two years ago, we started this with spending an episode on Ragnar's saga, which is actually multiple texts with different versions of Ragnar's story to tell. And last year, we spent an entire saga brief delving into Ragnar's death poem, The Krakumal. And anyone who hasn't heard those episodes yet can find them among the archives on our website, sagathingpodcast.wordpress.com. 
And there should be uh, some links to them on the page for this episode as well. Right. So if you ever want to learn about magic cows, unicorn horns, stiff pants, Viking raids, badass funeral pyres, the beasts of battle, and all the other myths and history connected with Ragnar and his family, you can get back up to speed with those. Mm-hmm. We're up to something a little different this time around. Right. It's time for the saga of Clive Standin, the handsome. <laughs> no, 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 that's the actor. Oh. I'm sure he's epic and all, but we're not doing entertainment tonight. Well, yeah, I, I know my wife is a very big fan of the shirtless Clive Standin, but... Um, well, I know, but you're more of a Ragnar man, aren't you? I am, yes. He's got that devilish charm to him, mm-hmm. doesn't he? Uh, but no, no, we're going to leave Ragnar to one side and take up the history of another character from the show, played by the handsome and often shirtless Clive Standin. It's <laughs> Ragnar's brother, Rolo. Rolo! Now, this is an interesting point of departure because historically, as far as we know, Ragnar didn't have a brother. Uh, at least the one that was reported, anyway. Right. And uh, there's only one really famous Viking named Rolo from this era. And it turns out that the Rolo from the Vikings is that guy. Yeah. Uh, so we're looking at the show's recent story arc for Rolo and how it intersects with the Viking Age history of northern France. For the record, if you aren't current with the show, we're about to spoil the hell out of the end of season three. So, you know, listen anyway and deal with your regret later. Nice, nice. So, uh, at the end of last season, most of Ragnar's surviving crew headed home to Kattegat after besieging Paris and forcing King Charles to pay tribute. But his brother Rollo stayed behind and struck a deal with the Franks. And in exchange for lands, title, and the hand of the king's daughter in marriage, Rollo agreed to protect the Franks against further raids from Ragnar and other Viking chieftains. Right, which means that Rollo, the envious brother of Ragnar is meant to be the historical Rollo who became the first chieftain of the Norman Vikings of northern France. Mm-hmm. In other words, the first chieftain of Normandy. And I have to say, I'm pretty impressed with the show's writers for pulling this off. I mean, mm-hmm. they kept this story in their back pockets until the third season, but including Rollo by that name in the show from the very beginning means that they did their homework and and they knew how they wanted to build the show in future seasons. Or at least I know. I, I was so. excited as hell when this storyline came into focus this past season. Yeah. Uh, incidentally, I don't know if you remember this, Andy, but we can actually claim a bit of a coup on this one. Ah, uh, yes. Yeah, I was wondering whether <laughs> you'd remember that. I mean, we guessed two years ago that Rollo must be the same Rollo who went on to found Normandy. I think it's in our Ragnar episode. Yeah. Now, admittedly, it wasn't a major piece of sleuthing on our parts. <laughs> I mean, history isn't exactly awash in Vikings named Rollo. And given the time period the show's set in, it was reasonable to figure that Ragnar's brother was probably planted in the cast so that the show could incorporate the story of the founding of Normandy. True, but of course, since the show's structure is built around the sagas of Ragnar Lothbrok and his sons, Rollo's mm-hmm. necessarily been warped a bit to fit into the world that the show creates. Yeah. I, I mean, for starters, we should be clear that Rollo and Ragnar are not historically brothers, like we said earlier, and in fact, they aren't even really contemporaries at all. Well, they're close. Close only counts in horseshoes and hand grenades, or so I've been told. You know, I, I can vouch for the horseshoes part of that, but I, I don't have a lot of experience with the latter. No, no, no. They really are close. I mean, if we accept the version of Ragnar's life that places his death in the early 860s in England, mm-hmm. he's really only a generation or so too early for Rollo. That's because still, Rollo so. is supposedly born around the middle of the 9th century. Okay, so they're close enough to be like uncle-nephew or something. Right. They're not related historically, but it's not a stretch to tell both of their stories as part of the show. No. There there actually are even stories from various European sources that tell of Rollo being found in the company of Bjorn Ironside, Ragnar's son, on the Italian peninsula at one point. 
Yeah, they'd actually be close in age, so mm-hmm. um, that would work. It, it's amazing how often Ragnar's family crops up in sources from all over Europe. Mm-hmm. He really was like kind of a, a boogeyman for the uh, Europeans living in fear of Viking raids. <laughs> he is. He really is. And and Ragnar and Rollo's historical stories, if we can use the word history very loosely here, have a number of parallels, uh, not least of which is that they both raided all over northern Europe and in both cases made their international mark by attacking Paris at various points in their careers. That's definitely true. The show conflated both sieges into one last season, but mm-hmm. Ragnar is supposed to have successfully raided Paris around the year 845, while Rollo came along and raided the area in uh, the 880s. So he didn't manage to conquer Paris, but he did capture Rouen, and eventually, just as in the show, he married a daughter of a Frankish lord as part of a peace deal. Now, unfortunately, we have very few contemporary accounts of Rollo's life, and almost nothing before he takes control of Normandy. Mm-hmm. So our biographical knowledge of him is fairly sketchy. Even the question of which Frankish woman he married is actually hard to answer. Right, so up to now, we've been falling into that pattern of focusing in pretty narrowly on Ragnar himself, with a little attention to his brood of murderous Ragnarsons. But it makes sense for the show to expand its world to encompass a broader Northern European story. Um, and we thought we'd do the same during this episode. And Rollo is definitely worth spending some time with. Yeah, there might not be a lot of contemporary sources for his story, but there's still a ton of material out there for Rollo. Uh, which mm-hmm. isn't really surprising since he's the ancestor of some very important people. Yeah, yeah. I mean, for starters, he's the umpteenth great-grandfather of Queen Elizabeth II. Mm. And all the kings and queens before her back to Harthacnut. All right, well, the problem is that very little of what we have is reliable, and I think we'll we'll see that as we go through. In fact, Rollo's historical importance is what makes him so difficult to learn anything reliable about. Mm-hmm. A lot of influential people have had a hand in shaping his legend for their own purposes. So while we'll do our best today, we're venturing into some difficult territory here, and there aren't a lot of absolutes. No, but I think we can sort out at least a sketch of his life. Well, yeah. Um, so what's the plan here, John? Are we going to talk about Rollo and his life, or are we going to be spending our time on the attacks in France and the establishment of the Duchy of Normandy, or what? Well, well, both, I think. I figured we'd start with the man himself. All right. Part 1. The Story of Rollo the Traveler. High deeds of Rollo, chief of chiefs I undertake, and of the Dacian lads at least half the tale. You left the lowest lands, took up too hard a task, as if swifter than Daedalus, or higher than Icarus. You extend your pinions into the heavens, and arduous work drives you far beyond. Dudo of San Quentin. This is really crazy. I, I want to read that whole thing now. Oh, it's fantastic. Man. <laughs> now, can I just start by asking this simple question? Yeah. What the heck was that? <laughs> <laughs> is this a Viking hero or a lost crew member from the Aeneid? Oh, <laughs> I know. It's really funny that you would say that. Yeah. Why Why? Why is that? You'll see in a moment. Okay. Uh, for now, I'll just say that we are obviously in a different register with some of these materials. You think? Uh that is part of the lofty introduction that Rollo gets in the history of the Normans. Mm-hmm. Uh, this is very much material in a continental tradition rather than our usual restrained sagas. All right. Now, but but don't go springing that kind of thing on me without warning because that was oh, pretty intense. I make no promises. Um, if we want to talk about Rollo, the Duke of Normandy, they're, 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 well, if we're going to do that, there are going to be three major problems right away. Uh, what are those? 
Well, number one, Rollo was never Duke of Normandy. Uh-oh. Number two, he never heard of Normandy. Yikes. And number three, he may not have been named Rollo. <laughs> okay. Those are very significant problems. But, uh, you know, I know you and I know that you're prone to overstating things a little for dramatic effect at times. So I'm assuming that now you're going to walk that back just a little bit. I would if I could. <laughs> the fact is the show's version of events is actually a lot closer to reality than you'd think. Hmm. Uh, in his lifetime, Rollo was called the Count of Ruin. Uh, Ruin being the largest of the territories under his control. It wasn't until at least his grandson's day that anyone thought to call the family Dukes. Okay. And Normandy, as a name for the region, isn't around until about a century later, when it shows up in a history written by Dudo of St. Quentin. And Dudo is almost certainly just making things up. <laughs> he's writing for Rollo's descendants, who are Dukes of Normandy, and he's all about sucking up to his patrons. Well, what chronicler isn't? Right. Um, but that does make things a lot more difficult. It does, yeah. Um, but it also makes sense. I mean, especially the Normandy part. I mean, the region mm-hmm. got its name from Rollo and his followers. Um, they were men of the north or Northmen, as they're often called. So mm-hmm. thus we get Normandy. Um, mm-hmm. So it, I think it makes sense that they have to be in a place for a while before the name catches on. It's not like they showed up and said, sure, this is Normandy. <laughs> named after us, the Normans. Northmans. Right. But you do actually also run into even a potential problem with a version of the eponymy. Uh, hmm. The chronicler Was calls Rollo Ru, R-O-U, apparently because he erroneously believed that the name Ruen as a region was derived from his name. Okay, so something like uh, the Brutons. Uh, yeah, actually, yeah, but you you probably need to explain that one. Oh, okay, yeah. So some some other medieval chroniclers, starting with Nennius in the ninth or the pseudo Nennius, excuse me, mm, pseudo Nennius <laughs> in the ninth century, um, but also including Was, actually, mm-hmm. they they tried mm-hmm. to explain the name Britain as a derivation from the legendary figure Brutus Aeneas, who supposedly founded the kingdom of Britain. Um, if you've read your Sir Gawain and the Green Knight recently, you'll have encountered that kind of story. Right, right, right. Exactly. Now Was is wrong about the Ru Ruen connection. But it tells us something about the sort of invention that we'll be seeing in these texts. People are just kind of trying to put it together without mm-hmm. any real knowledge. So the tricky part to investigating Rollo's life story is that that story changes from one century to the next, in large part depending on the loyalties and the vested interests of whoever's doing the writing. Ragnar Lothbrok, to be, by comparison, has a fairly consistent personality across the stories written in his name. Right? But Rollo is more like a medieval saint. His biography is constantly reshaped for the needs of future generations. So even though he's more historically traceable than Ragnar, I think this is interesting, we actually end up being less able to rely on the literature surrounding his name? Yeah, pretty much. Fascinating. (laughs) Um, I have to say this. This probably doesn't fill anyone listening with hope that we're going to be particularly useful to them. But this is why we're doing this. To confuse them? To lay the literary historical equivalent of a breadcrumb trail for others to follow. Okay, Gretel. <laughs> but hang on now. We haven't finished dealing with the fact that Rollo might not actually be named Rollo. Oh, right. So we should be clear that we're going to call him Rollo anyway. Um, mm-hmm. And he's often called that. But it's true. He's sometimes called Hrolf or Rulo or Ruf. Right. Uh, Adamar of Chabans calls him Rosso. Uh, and some charters use the Latinized Rolfus mm. or Ralph. Um, he's also then called Robert in some sources after his conversion. Sure. Uh, and as we said, the 12th century chronicler Was calls him Roux, as in the Roman de Roux. Now, some of this just reflects how the same name gets rendered in different languages of the time. And we can more or less agree that any source talking about the guy who becomes the first Norman lord is, 
very likely our Rolo. For simplicity's sake, yes. So we can start with what's known of the historical Rolo's life. (laughs) Okay. Uh, Have you got 10 seconds to spare? Oh, it's not that bad. We've got a number (laughs) of sources to look at. Yeah, but you said what's known. Uh The problem is that no two of these sources agree about where Rolo comes from or how he spends his early life. Well, we're going to make a few broad statements, but we always do, and and most of the problems are about details anyway. I'm not so sure. Where Rollo's from, in other words, what sort of person the Franks think they're installing as the lord of their northernmost province, seems significant. Hmm. For starters, early Norman writers say that Rollo is a Dane. Yeah, that's true, but uh, Europeans in this time period called every Scandinavian a Dane. True. But Dudo St. Quentin, who's writing in the very late 10th or possibly the early 11th century, actually goes so far as to report that Rollo was the younger son of a high-ranking Scandinavian lord and was banished when his father was killed in a coup attempt. Right. Briefly, uh, what happens, according to Dudo, is that a jealous king arranges the death of Rollo's father, and in response, Rollo and his brother Gurim begin to make war on the king. Understandably. Now, which king are we talking about here? It's the king of Dacia, of course. Right. Now, that's not terribly likely. Why not? Because... Dacia is a Thracian sub-kingdom in this Greco-Roman world. (laughs) Now, I'm not a classicist, but I did marry one. And I'm pretty sure Dacia was overrun after the Roman occupation and eventually dissolved into the Carolingian Empire. Well, now, no. Obviously not that Dacia. (laughs) Dudo, and I think you know this, uses Dacia as a kind of undefined Scandinavian kingdom. So he uses it just like some other writers use Dane to mean a kingdom where big hairy men with axes come from. (laughs) It seems to be somewhere around or in Norway, which would make sense. Okay, so he thinks Rollo is Dacian, which may or may not mean Norse. Okay, Mm -hmm. so what happens in this version? Well, you know, after five years of successful warfare, the brothers receive an invitation to make a truce with the king. And they decide to take the offer, but the entire thing is actually a ruse, and they're ambushed as soon as they reveal themselves. Mm. (laughs) So Rollo and Gurum fight bravely against this uh, ambush, but they are outnumbered and betrayed by some of their own men, which kind of stinks for them. And Gurum is unfortunately killed, and Rollo barely escapes with his life. This is why you don't accept and trust the first offer of peace you get. It's always a trick. Remember that, Obama. Now, none of that is verifiable, of course. There are a number of texts that cover a feud that supposedly leads to Rollo's exile, but they don't tend to agree about who he was feuding with or how or why the feud occurred. And as we already said, Dudo is a lying liar with his pants on fire. (laughs) Did we say that? More or less. I'm paraphrasing the sentiment. Okay. Um, So some other writers actually do specify that Rollo is Norwegian. Uh, William of Malmesbury. Right. So, oh, now there's an amazing liar if well, you want one. Well, okay, indeed he is. Uh, but this amazing liar says that Rollo was, quote, born into a noble lineage among the Norwegian people. But other sources claim that he's the son of the first king of Dublin, or born somewhere out in Finland, or in modern day, or what is now modern day Russia. Uh, and he even shows up in a couple of Icelandic sagas. Finally, some sagas. Yeah. Now, I, I remember him in Orkninga Saga, and I, I actually wrote notes about it back in the uh, day. Oh, yeah, he turns up in Heimskringla briefly as well, but let's start with yours. What mm-hmm. have you got? Well, in Orkninga Saga, uh, Rollo's named Hrolf Rongvaldsson. Mm. His parents are Earl Rongvald, the wise of Moor, and Ronghild Hrolfstalter. That's it's actually an impressive family to come from. It's a very impressive family to come from. And if it's true, Rollo's family traces its roots back through Hofdan the Old to legendary founders of Scandinavia mm-hmm. itself. And Rollo's half-brother, Turfinar, 
becomes one of the greatest earls of Orkney. We've mentioned him before mm-hmm. on the podcast. Now, what's going on in the uh, the Heimskringla version? Very similar story. Uh, Rolf and Thorir in this version are the two legitimate sons of Earl Ronvald, who also has three illegitimate sons, one of them Turfinar. In this mm-hmm. version, Rolf is so huge that no horse can carry him, which leads to his receiving the nickname Gongu Rolf, or Rolf the Walker. Yeah, it figures you'd find a way to work another nickname in. I'm just doing my job. Yeah. So, Rolf is a somewhat unruly lad, and one day he decides to engage in a little cattle raid in another part of Norway. You know, as one does. Oh, sure. Many is the time I rustled cattle in my youth. <laughs> Who hasn't? Sure. The problem is where we are historically right now. This is probably happening sometime around 870 AD, and regular listeners may remember why that's an important year. Well, absolutely. That uh, This section of Heimskringla is called the Saga of King Harold Fairhair, mm-hmm. and we're talking about the newly united Norway under King Harold's rule. I mean, this is the same Harold who the Icelandic settlers were escaping from when they settled Iceland. Right. And what I like about this version of Rollo's story is that it helps us to broaden the conversation about that a little. Norwegians fled Harold's rule in all directions. Some went to Iceland, but others ended up in the British Isles, parts of Scandinavia, northern Europe, on the Russian coast, all over the place, really. Uh, And Mm -hmm. Rollo is about to find out why they all fled. So you're saying Harold doesn't like it when naughty lads go cattle raiding in his brand new kingdom? No, he does not. No, I can't imagine why. Yeah, that's actually a really nice historical detail. What Rolf or Rollo or whatever you want to say his name is doing wouldn't have raised any eyebrows a few years earlier, probably. Mm-hmm. One part of Norway had no particular loyalty to another, and a minor cattle raid certainly wouldn't be cause for any serious trouble, as long as the cattle owners didn't catch right. them. But now that Norway's politically unified, Harold's determined to treat the entire kingdom as one, which, unfortunately for Rollo, means that he's committed an offense against his own Exactly. Uh, it's an idea that catches on in England around the same time. Uh, Alfred the Great's grandson, Athelstan, introduces some similar legal concepts in the early 10th century. Mm-hmm. In this case, Harold responds by declaring Rollo an outlaw from all of Norway. So in Heimskringla, Rollo's not involved in a coup or anything like that. He's just a cattle rustler who got caught. More or less, yeah. Uh, mm. But of course, these these writers aren't loyal to the later Norman lords the way that many of the other sto- sources are. Uh, right. But there's another wrinkle here that I like. Rollo's mother goes around to Harold's court to complain about how her son's been treated. <laughs> That's right. She's like this uh, ninth century helicopter parent or it's, something. It's a little surreal. Uh, she argues with Harold for a while, and when he won't give in, she speaks a verse criticizing him. Are you going to read this in a woman's voice? How else would I do it? <laughs> Why do you, King Harold, in your rage drive away my brave Rollo Walker like a mad wolf from out of the land? Why, Harold, raise thy mighty hand? Why banish Nephia's gallant name, son, the brave freeholder from his land? Why is thy cruelty so fell? That was brilliantly done. (laughs) (laughs) It's a little hard to imagine anyone getting away with talking to Harold like that. This is Harold Fairhair we're talking about. In that voice is what I'm saying. (laughs) I do like the idea of Harold being just completely flummoxed by this old woman shouting insults at him. <laughs> you know, on the, on the other hand, there there's a cultural tendency at work mm-hmm. here. I mean, people tend to be allowed to say their piece, even if there are consequences later. Mm-hmm. And as we've talked about before on the show, women are often allowed the freedom to say things that men wouldn't tolerate from each other. True. Uh, but regardless of his mother's poetry slam on Harold, 
Rollo's <laughs> been given the old derriere velocite, and he has to find somewhere new to steal cows from. Can you, the what? The derriere velocite. The uh, the bums rush. Oh, you're just the worst <laughs> with these phrases. Where do you come up with this stuff? Anyway, Rollo has to find a new home. Uh, so he goes to the Hebrides for a while, and only later he begins raiding along the Frankish coasts. Now, obviously, no one of these origin stories is definitive, so... No. Uh, I like the Heimskringla one, but that's just personal prejudice. Uh, mm-hmm. Whatever the true story might be, by the time he enters the stage as a Viking marauder of the Frankish coast, he's probably based out of Norway, and his men are the usual mix of Norwegians, Danes, and other Scandinavians. Okay, so having gotten all of our caveats lined up, are we ready to finally deal with Rollo, the Duke of Normandy? If that is his real name and title, sure. which is not. <laughs> so Rollo, or Rolf the Walker, lived... Which I like. Yeah, it is cool. Uh, lived quite an interesting life. Uh, he is the progenitor of the Norman Dukes, even if he only gets the title himself retroactively. And that means he's got some very famous descendants. Mm-hmm. Rollo is obviously the only figure directly related to the show, at least so far. But his descendants are historically important people. Since they're going to eventually succeed in conquering England, where Ragnar and his sons will ultimately fail, ahem, ahem, it's worth at least mentioning them, too. <laughs> I'd say so. I mean, as we mentioned in an earlier episode, Rollo is the great-great-great-grandfather mm-hmm. of William the Bastard slash Conqueror, mm-hmm. which means that he's also an important ancestor of the British royal line through to the modern day. Right. And in their own day, each of the Norman dukes had his own claim to fame. Rollo and his descendants down to William's father, Robert the Magnificent, are collectively known in northern France as the Six Dukes. And they get up to some serious hijinks. Uh, but what we're interested in here is Rollo's centrality to European history. We might have to do an entire episode one of these days about the generations between Rollo and William the Bastard. But for now, we just need to take a second to appreciate that Rollo's direct descendants include Emma of Normandy, her sons Har the Knut and Edward Confessor, and William the Conqueror, and then through William, all the kings and queens of England down to the present day, and through his descendants, many of the other royal families of Europe. That is an impressive pedigree. And we, we obviously aren't going to get to Rollo's descendants in any detail in this episode, but if you aren't familiar with the Norman Dukes and the conquest of England, we strongly recommend that you go listen to the Rex Factor podcast episodes on the late mm. Anglo-Saxon kings and William the Conqueror. And I'll try to link those on the uh, website. Yeah, you really should. There's some great stories about Emma of Normandy seated through those episodes. And the Rex Factor guys do a tremendous job of explaining all the complicated power structures that grew up between Normandy and England. And actually, we'll be getting to a slightly weird Normandy-England link later in this episode. And Rollo's legacy is really tied up in all of mm-hmm. that. I mean, there there's a moment in the third season of Vikings that I think pretty well captures the way the show is looking ahead to Rollo's place as founder of the Normans. This one is from episode five, The Usurper. And Rollo is speaking with the seer about his hopelessness. Ooh, are we going to get an actual clip? Mm-hmm. Check this out. Why am I still so angry? You tell me, wise one. Or I will tell you. It is because I am useless, fruitless, hollowed out by failed ambitions, by failed loves. Nothing good can ever come of my life now. <laughs> What is there to laugh about? Uh, Rollo, 
If you truly knew what the gods have in store for you, you would go down now and dance naked on the beach. <laughs> Obviously, we don't know how closely the story on Vikings is going to play to history. We've already got some seriously weird stuff going on with Athelstan turning out to be the father of the future Alfred mm-hmm. the Great. But the writers are clearly building on Rollo's historical role. He is, in fact, going to be founding Normandy in season four. And presumably at some point, he'll be having a son to inherit the land from him. Right. And and honestly, even this idea of the seer foretelling all this isn't too far-fetched. Uh, the literature includes a number of supposedly prophetic poems about Rollo, including uh, the poems from Dudo's History of the Normans that we'll be hearing throughout this episode. Not to mention that, as we were just hinting a moment ago, France's medieval future and the sibling rivalry between England and France in the later Middle Ages both owe a lot to Rollo's descendants eventually straddling the English Channel. Right, and it's not just us saga guys saying that. Uh, Urban T. Holmes Jr. wrote that it is a fact of startling significance that those little bands of Scandinavian pirates who settled in France in the 9th and 10th centuries did the most toward exalting the French name and language. Little bands of Scandinavian pirates, huh? Pirates is his word, not mine. <laughs> like the showrunners, personally, I like. I think Vikings pretty much covers it. What about uh, Marauders? Maybe. Coursers? No. <laughs> Besides, Rollo's not going to be raiding for long. Raiders! No. <laughs> he's, he's not going to be doing it for a long, because as we know, he's going to be so effective in harrying the north of Francia. Ah, go- Harriers. Silence! Harriers. <laughs> <laughs> the point is that Holmes is right. The decision to concede French land to Rollo has tremendous consequences for the entirety of Northern Europe over these next few centuries. Okay. So I, I think to cover this in a single episode, we're going to have to limit our sources somewhat. It's pretty clear that the chroniclers and writers recognize the significance of Rollo's success, especially once his descendants became kings of England a century and a half mm-hmm. later. It seems like everybody has something to say about this guy. Yeah, and we're definitely not going to try to cover everything. We can't. We'll just focus on a handful of the important texts. Over the next six hours. Right. <laughs> and the most important text is an eyewitness account of a massive Viking assault on Paris. Part 2. The War for Paris. Skjegel! 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 Among the faithful defenders of Paris were no more than 200. The grim foes were a thousand times forty. Oh, most horrid sight. They fought fiercely. A great quaking clamor arose. It could be heard on both sides. A mighty chorus of voices filled the air as hurtling rocks smashed into painted shields. These shields let forth groans and helmets clattered as swift arrows fell. Abbo of St. Germain So, we have to start with the earliest of the major accounts of the attacks on Paris, and it is a thing of beauty. No, it's a mess is what it is. But a glorious mess. Glorious! It's called the Bella Parisci Urbis, or the oh, War wow. for the City of Paris. Now that's a good title. Its author is named Abo, and he's supposed to be a sort of chronicler. Mm-hmm. But he's also actually present at the Siege of Paris. 
actually there when it happens. That's like inside the walls. You've confirmed yep. that? Yep. Well, I mean, as much as I can. <laughs> he uh, just says he is. So he's there, and he has the frustrated soul of a poet. Mm. Unfortunately, that poet is Virgil. And Abbo is <laughs> trying really hard to produce something that looks and sounds like a ninth century Aeneid. Oh, See okay. See what I that... from before, yeah. Mm-hmm. Well, now that I think about it thematically, you know, the connection makes some sense. And certainly the, the poetry mm. uh, all matches up. You know, Virgil's Aeneid is in part a retelling of the fall of Troy. And for a ninth century Frank, I can understand the connection to the repeated sieges of Paris by Viking raiders. Well, I mean, the allegory is pretty straightforward. Mm-hmm. I don't think you need a lot of imagination. Um, of course, it doesn't bode well for Paris to be compared to Troy in that scenario. <laughs> no, it doesn't. Um, mm. And the parallels are actually pretty substantial. Uh, remember that Rollo's eventual price for backing off is going to include marrying a daughter of the French nobility. That's true. And and let's not forget the way Ragnar finally gets inside the walls of Paris on the show last season. Ah, yes, the Trojan coffin. Yes, I like that part. Yeah, by the way, did you know that that was based on an actual tactic used by Norse raiders once? Yeah, I actually, I read that somewhere. Um, mm-hmm. it, isn't it one of the sons of Ragnar who did it? Uh, maybe, not exactly. Maybe someone who's with uh, his his mm. son. Um, anyway, I didn't run across this story in any chronicle, though, but in a book that my daughter Gwen got out of the library at her school. Oh. She was showing it to me uh, because she's fascinated by the Vikings just like I am. And then I spotted this awesome story. Excellent. So uh, th- this one's about a warrior whose name is Hostine. And he's traveling with Bjorn Ironside. So they're raiding in what is now Italy. And Hostin ends the siege of the city of Luna by claiming that he's dying and wants a Christian burial. And after that, it pretty much goes the way it did on the show. He leaps out of the coffin in the church. Lots of people get killed and the city eventually falls. Awesome. And mm-hmm. by the way, trust you to fit the Ragnarsons into this somehow. Well, I do my best. They're pretty awesome. Uh, I didn't mention Ivar the Boneless, well, except yes, I just did. You just did. <laughs> yeah. So we've got a narrative that's uh, that's nearly a contemporary account of events, but its author also has one eye on a nearly thousand-year-old epic poem that he sees as an allegorical map for his subject. So he only has one eye? <laughs> one eye on the the poem, one eye on contemporary events. Ah, Two right. Total okay. eyes. <laughs> as far as you know. So the, the tricky part is that whenever a writer's subject and interest lead him to borrow heavily from another text, it's hard to know where the parallels are real and where they're being shaped by the author to fit into a familiar narrative. Exactly. And mm-hmm. by the way, a related problem is that Abbo of St. Germain is no Virgil. Oh, poor Abbo of St. Germain. Um, as Nirmal Das has argued, the presence <laughs> of Virgil looms large throughout the Bella. Well, dissing but, through scholarship. That's right. <laughs> I'd actually go further than that uh, and say that Virgil's work haunts Abbo. Hmm. It's I mean, it's fascinating as pseudo history, but to my mind, it is not a complete success as a piece of poetry. No. Uh, and to Abbo's credit, he says as much as introduction. For all the verses of my work, I have chosen meters that grow clumsy, caused perhaps by my ignorance, but more likely by my forgetfulness. Hmm. But at least they will be few in number. <laughs> Really? How few? Tell <laughs> me very few. few. The poem oh. clocks in at about 1,400 lines. How many Hrovenkels is that? <laughs> <laughs> okay, so we've got an obscure monk and a would-be epic poet writing a somewhat derivative narrative about the Vikings attacking Paris. That's pretty awesome. So let's dig in. Okay. So the first thing we have to be aware of is that Abo isn't focused on Rollo specifically. Well, then why'd you bring it, him up? Well, 
In fact, Rolo doesn't even come up at all in this. Oh. So our discussion of Rolo and Francis kicking off with the poem he's not even in? Yeah. <laughs> this is going to be a very long episode, isn't it? Uh, no, no, no. Oh, hey, I see the stack of books next to you with all the tabs in it. There's no stopping this freight train. Well, what we get oh, from Abo is an eyewitness account of the sieges of Paris from the Frank's point of view. Okay. He writes his account in the years immediately following the siege when Rollo hasn't yet become identified with those attacks and before he becomes chieftain of Normandy. So so Rollo's there. He's just not in the spotlight and, and Abo presumably hasn't heard of him yet. Right. Other sources are much clearer that this is Rollo's army. Okay. So we'll have to intersperse some other perspectives here and there. Okay. Well, this is a problem that European writers frequently had with the Vikings. They couldn't quite work out the command structure of a Viking army, which mm-hmm. is actually not surprising since the Viking bands tended to be less hierarchical and less given to open displays of command than Europeans were used to. Right. In fact, our favorite liar, Dudo, says that when the Franks uh, sent an envoy out to take the measure of Rollo's force, they have an exchange that underlines this problem. Mm-hmm. Uh, here, tell you what, you can be the invaders. Oh, okay. We, representatives of the king's authority, <laughs> command you that you say who you are, and where you come from, and what you want. Um, we are Danes, and we have sailed from Dacia. We come to conquer Francia. By what title does your chief hold office? <laughs> By none, because we are equal in power. Well, that's pretty straightforward. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and that's in a text that does want to make a central figure of Rollo. Right. So Abo's lack of specificity about Rollo's command isn't really surprising. Uh, instead, he gives us a description of the Viking band in general, and he cycles through several leaders of the Horde rather than identifying one king or general. Well, that's kind of very Aeneid of him and mm-hmm. Iliadic. True. Um, but enough talk. Let's uh, Let's attack the city. Okay. According to Abo, the attack begins one day in 885, when Viking ships begin crowding into the Seine, the river that runs alongside and through modern Paris. The ships keep arriving, as Abo describes it, and I've got it right here. 700 high-proud ships, and very many smaller ones, along with an enormous multitude of the ships called barks, packed the river for a distance that extended more than two leagues downriver, so that one asked in amazement, where had the river vanished? Hmm. Now those are some barks with a little bit of bite, huh? <laughs> hmm? Ba-da-ba. <laughs> it's probably a bit of an exaggeration, but uh, his point is important. The, the sheer number of the attackers was horrifying, especially when you realize that there were only a few hundred defenders inside the city, which is not yeah. a lot. Yeah, and it's mystifying to a modern mind that the city is so poorly defended. Mm-hmm. I mean, Ragnar was here only a generation ago, and he wrecked the place you think that something would have been done to shore up the defenses. And it's not like Rollo's arrival is a complete surprise. Well, Abbo's description sure makes it sound like they weren't expecting an attack. Uh, well, I think we have to assume that Abbo's interested in making the Franks look more competent than they might have been. No. Our other sources are pretty clear that Rollo has already been raiding and camping around Francia for about five years at this point. Five years? Yep. And he's already conquered several provinces. So the key here is understanding that the Franks didn't necessarily think of Paris as having the same importance that we attach to it today. I mean, that or maybe maybe they're just idiots. <laughs> I think a little from column A and a little from column B. That's a little uh, harsh. But neither of those options appeals to Abo, obviously. So the situation gets cast instead as a plucky band of defenders <laughs> trying to hold off an unexpected onslaught. There's a brief moment of calm before the storm, while a leader of the Vikings, a man named Siegfried, 
meets with Bishop Goslin of Paris. Siegfried offers to leave the city in peace if they allow the Vikings to sail along the Seine and raid further inland. Goslin refuses, saying, If by chance these walls were entrusted to you as they are to us, would you agree to those terms? Siegfried has to admit that he'd rather have his head chopped off and thrown to the dogs. Which pretty much ends the conversation, and both sides prepare for battle. That's quite an image. I like it. So so it's battle time now, yeah, right? Yeah. And it's it's almost awesome. it's almost over as soon as it begins. Uh, the Parisians aren't really prepared for an attack, and the walls nearly fall on the first day of the assault. But some hastily built fortifications are added to the defenses of the town, and both sides begin taking a slow and steady toll on one another. I, I love the description of the defense in this text. It, it's everything people tend to imagine when they think of a medieval siege. There's towers being toppled. Ladders everywhere, clouds of arrow shot and spears fired back and forth. Mm -hmm. And there's even an early scene when we get a boiling oil defense, which almost (laughs) never happens in the literature. (laughs) This is exactly why we chose to base the Paris part of Rollo's life on Abbo's text. Mm -hmm. It's not entirely reliable, but it's full of these brutal details about the battle. And in moments like this, it also becomes clear that it's probably one of the sources used on the show for the Paris attack. Did you want to read the boiling oil part? I do because I love it so. Mm. (laughs) Now, a group of Vikings is trying to undermine a tower wall, and they're having some success. But Count Odo, the military leader of the Parisians, has his cauldrons ready. He served them up with oil and wax and pitch, which was all mixed up together and made into a burning liquid on a furnace, which poured down and burned the hair of the Danes, made their skulls split open. Indeed. Many of them died, while others went and sought out the river. And then our men of Paris loudly exclaimed, Rightly bad scorched you are! Run now to the Seine! Its current will allay your pain and restore your flowing manes! <laughs> oh my god, is that the voice? Well, I, was, uh, uh, I was attempting to channel a Monty Python uh, knight on the castle wall. Oh, well, I don't think is, I did a great job. That is job. certainly something. Uh, but even that, I mean, boiling pitch just sounds horrifying. Oh, I especially like that the Parisians are shouting insults about ruining the Vikings' manes. There, <laughs> there, there really aren't enough battlefield taunts about messing up your opponent's hairstyles. <laughs> well, there's something to that, at least. I mean, not the taunting part, the hairstyling. Vikings were notorious for their high-maintenance attention to their physical appearance. Mm-hmm. We had this uh, false image of them as unwashed and hairy, but a lot of that image comes from the Romans describing them. Yeah, I, I was just telling my students about this today. Mm-hmm. Um, but, but of course, Germanic culture has also evolved since then, and Abbo's writing four or five hundred years after the fall of Rome. And by this time, the Vikings have a reputation for regular washing, carefully groomed beards and hair, and in some cases, even eyeliner and makeup. Right, that's actually a good point. Because uh, it does force you to confront some long-held stereotypes to realize that Rollo and the Vikings are probably much better groomed and cleaner than the Parisians they're attacking. And actually, it means that the coal or the black eyeliner that Floki and Ragnar wear on Vikings is more or less historically accurate. Right. It's not just that they're like Cure fans or something. This is actually something that historically would make sense. Do Cure fans wear... I, I was a Cure fan. I didn't wear any eyeliner. At least not that you're willing to admit now. <laughs> <laughs> no, um, I didn't. What I find interesting here is how the Normans evolve on this issue. In what way? Well... Once they're established in Normandy, which is going to happen a couple of decades after this battle, they're going to adapt fairly quickly to the local standards of beauty. Mm -hmm. By the time Rollo's descendant, William the Bastard, is invading England, the Normans are quick to make fun of the Anglo-Saxons for the same sorts of hairstyling and primping that the Parisians are mocking here. 
So uh, as a long-haired man yourself, John, how do you feel about these jokes at the expense of Viking mullets? <laughs> Honestly, as long as you don't pour boiling pitch in my head, I don't care what sorts of insults you shout. <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, you know, I won't do that. So where were we? Uh, the ferocity of the French taunting took the Vikings completely by surprise. Really? <laughs> we're doing Monty Python jokes now? I, I think it's hard to resist under the circumstances. Uh, in any case, I think it's mostly the boiling pitch that catches them off guard. <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah, and it messes up their hairdos. And their <laughs> skull connections. Skull. Uh, <laughs> so this battle goes on for quite a while. I mean, really, if you can track down a copy of the poem, it is worth a read. Uh, there are a lot of heroic stands, people being crushed by rocks, shot through with spears. It's good stuff. And there's also a sort of uh, dark humor going on. At one point, a defender named Ebolus, oh, that's an unfortunate name these days, <laughs> he runs several Vikings through with a single spear and jokes to his companions that they should be taken down to the kitchen since they're already spitted. <laughs> there are times when I think Abo missed his calling. With a yeah. little more work, he could have been a saga writer. Whoa, now those are strong words for someone who was calling him a wannabe Virgil just a few minutes ago. Well, no, I stand by that. My point is he could have been so much more. Oh. I mean, that's a fair candidate for a notable witticism right there. Uh, I think that wins right out. <laughs> so, okay, I can't help but notice that the Vikings don't seem to be doing well in this poem. What do you mean? Well, John, they're dying. Their skulls are <laughs> splitting open. I mean, the living ones are covered in boiling oil. Things aren't going I well. See. I see. Uh, well, not all of them. The point Abo is making here is that God is on the side of the Franks, but the Vikings have an overwhelming advantage of numbers. Okay, so the narrative he's trying to create has to balance those two stories, right? Right. So other versions of the story are written to please Rollo's descendants, and they paint a very different picture of incompetent or cowardly Franks squandering mm. their resources against a plucky group of Norsemen under the wise and crafty leadership of Rollo. <laughs> William of Malmesbury, another famous liar, as you said, calls the defense of Paris a series of calamities that essentially force the Franks to concede lands to Rollo. Now, it's interesting that both sides want to claim underdog status. It's really weird. Well, it's, it's like classic, they're all from Cleveland. I mean, <laughs> <laughs> I think it's a classic setup for heroic stands, right? And that gives hmm. us the best stories in the texts. Uh, I, I, do you want to explain the defense of the tower? Yeah, sure. So uh, a band of 12 Frankish knights get caught guarding a ramshackle tower when the Vikings attack it in force. It, it, it's this dozen men against the entire Viking army, and we're given all their names and told of their supreme stand. And then finally, the, the Danes, they set fire to the tower to smoke them out. And the dozen men can't put out the flames. But instead of surrendering, they release their hawks so that they at least will survive and then carry on fighting the Danes. I love that. So they stop fighting to release their hawks. Yeah. Which means up to this point, these guys have been fighting the Vikings with a hawk perched on one arm. Wow. That's about the most romantic thing I've ever heard. I don't think they take things that far. They just like their hawks a lot. <laughs> you know what I meant. This is a, romantic as in literature. Uh, uh -huh. This is an early example of something that's going to be a trope of the French romance. <laughs> right? The ubiquitous presence of hunting birds is a sort of accessory to a knight. Okay, yeah, I, I, I knew that's what you meant. Anyway, despite losing their birds. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, all right, all right. 
So anyway, despite losing their birds and being slightly on fire, the Franks are still holding their own, but the Vikings are just too numerous and the Franks know it. So when the Vikings invite them to come out and be captured alive, they take the deal, which is very unsaga-like of them. Well, and there's just no way you should trust those guys, right? Not in the Abo version of the story. No, obviously not. But but there are rules that are supposed to govern how to treat a surrendering enemy. And the Vikings, the Vikings, they violate those rules by slaughtering the men when they surrender. That's just naughty. I mean, the Vi- the Geneva Convention exists for a reason. Bad Vikings, bad. Uh, the Geneva Convention? Well, you know. <laughs> how about the don't kill your enemies once they've stopped fighting rule? Ah, that makes more sense, I guess. But not to Vikings. Hmm. Anyway. They actually only kill 11 of the defenders. They mistake the 12th, a knight named Erevius, for a king because he's got a particularly noble demeanor and bearing. So they plan to ransom him back, but he swears that he'll never accept being ransomed when his friends are dead. So, you know, they kill him the next day. (laughs) It's a little (laughs) anticlimactic. Yeah, well, sorry. But, you know, his hawk survived, so that's nice. Oh, how romantic. Hmm. Um, So, despite the loss of their best knights, the Franks are able to hold the walls until the end of the campaigning season for 885. Mm-hmm. But they haven't got the manpower to stop the Vikings from ransacking the unfortified towns and farms nearby. Abo reports a great slaughter in the countryside as the Vikings spread out and look for food and shelter for the winter. Now, we get a somewhat different version of things from Dudo. In his version, Rolo's Danes are running low on supplies, and they move on to Bayou in order to complete a siege there. During that campaign, Rollo captures the daughter of Beringer, the Count of Reigns. And later, he has a son with her. This is another one of those elements of Rollo's story that keeps changing. Uh, mm-hmm. Sometimes he ends up married to the daughter of the King of France. Sometimes it's to this woman whose name is Popa. The chronicler <laughs> Flodoard says that Rollo fathers his only son with a concubine from Breton. I don't know if you know this, but um, the Russian word for bum or booty is Popa. Is that true? It is. I don't so think that's, a- that's what's being referred to here. No, I don't know. Maybe she's the originator of that term. Oh, dear. Mm. Well, whatever Rollo's up to during the winter <laughs> with Popa, the Vikings are able to garrison themselves fairly comfortably during the cold season, while the Franks are stuck behind their crumbling walls. Well, now it's funny you should mention that. Well, you know that I love a good segue. Let's do it. Part 3, An English Interlude. Then Rollo assembled his men and did battle with the English rebels, taking their cities and destroying their castles. Those who set the war in motion were contorted in anger and tore at their skin. They had shown great scorn for the English king and his men, but it was Rollo's men who defeated all of them. From many, he cut off the ears and feet. Was the chronicle. As we said earlier, the sources for Rollo's life can't even seem to agree on the most basic details. Normally, this isn't a big deal, but for this next section, it makes a big difference. Yeah, at this point, we have to deal with the whole part of Rollo's life and travels that simply aren't mentioned in a lot of the sources. Right in the middle of the Siege of Paris, Rollo and most of his men suddenly sail across the English Channel and join forces with the English king to put down a rebellion. Now, now on the face of it, that makes no sense. Oh, even deep inside of it, it makes no sense. <laughs> but it makes no sense for a very sensible reason, I think. I suppose so. Yeah. 
Uh, you know, up to now, we've been basing Rollo's career mostly on the sources like the sagas and Abel's War for the City of Paris. Those sources all have a fundamental common perspective, which is that they really don't care about Rollo himself. <laughs> the sagas mention him in order to flesh out the stories about the Earls of Orkney or Harold Fairhair or even the Ragnarsons. Yeah, no, I see what you're saying. And Abbo, in the meantime, is so focused on the uh, Frankish perspective that he doesn't even mention Rollo by name. But but I really like Abbo. He's, he's worth talking about. I do, too. I think he's fun. Uh, middling epic poetry, I think, is a weakness of mine. <laughs> but let's stick to the point. There's an entirely different version of Rollo's life story out there, which forms the backbone of the other texts that we've been dipping into. Uh, Dudo's History of the Normans, Wasse's Roman de Roux, uh, William of Malmesbury's History of English Kings, uh, William of Jumege, uh, the Gesta Normanorum Ducum, the History of the Norman Dukes, and a pile of others. Yeah, these are all available in different uh, editions, either in print or online. And we'll, we'll try to put up a bibliography on the blog for anyone who wants to go down that rabbit hole of contemporary pro-Norman propaganda. And it is and, a very deep and winding rabbit hole. Yes, uh, and you've hit on the point right there. That other tradition is built around a core narrative that wants to reshape Rollo's career into one that's worthy of the founder of a noble dynasty. Mm -hmm. It's propaganda. And since that dynasty is going to go on to become the kings of England after 1066, these texts are also going to seek ways to insert an English component into Rollo's story. Yeah, and they're not even subtle about it. No, they're really not. Yeah, we skipped over it earlier, but the earliest sign of these stories looking ahead to the English chapter of Rollo's descendants happens before he ever gets to Francia. In these stories, mm -hmm. Rollo stops in England for a while, where he gets quite chummy with the English king Athelstan. Now, there are so many problems with that. Um, first of all, the whole thing is handled really lazily. Uh, Rollo is exiled from his homeland and shows up in England with a bunch of Norse warriors in tow. And we're supposed to believe that the English king's response is to cheerfully welcome these Vikings with a flowery speech. Well, at least they're not Danish. Right. I mean, this is the version in Dudo. Put aside the troubles of your enterprise. <laughs> Be safe here from weapons. Unconcerned by battles and immune from all ills. Oh, it, it goes even further than that. Athelstan pledges friendship with Rollo in a flowery poetic speech. <laughs> Let us agree on a treaty of peace and be joined in one faith. Always remain, I beseech you, part of my soul and companion. <laughs> Stay on, I earnestly beg you, here in the confines of our land, so to cleanse away sin in the life-giving waters of baptism. The two of them swear lifelong friendship, and Rollo, having restocked his ships now, follows his fortunes back to Francia. It's really, really over the top. It is, but it's hitting on all the right notes for a pledge of mutual friendship. I mean, the idea is that King Athelstan recognizes in Rollo a friend and an equal. What's never addressed is why an Anglo-Saxon king in the 880s would respond to the arrival of a Viking band with anything but violence. Yeah, no, it's, it's, it's easy to get confused about the multiple timelines here, but remember we're talking about the 870s or 880s. In England, this is happening during or possibly a couple of years after the end of island-wide total war with a massive Viking army led by the Ragnarsons. Mm -hmm. And they haven't gotten to that yet on the show, but I am very much looking forward to seeing the Ragnarsons tromp through England. So maybe <laughs> next season that's what we'll get. Well, possibly. But again, the problem is that no English king should be acting like an excited kid watching a moving van pull in next door and hoping the new Viking neighbors have a kid his age. We're being asked to buy that this king, probably still burying the dead from the war with the Ragnarsons, 
is looking at Viking sails on the horizon and thinking, Ooh, more Norsemen! I hope they'll be friends with me! (laughs) Right. But there's also a more fundamental problem here. Which is? Uh, Well, this king's name's Athelstan. Oh, right, that. Mm -hmm. Uh, Okay, so, well, first of all, fans of the show might get confused here. This is the English King Athelstan, not the sexy priest from the show. Right, and the big problem is that Athelstan is King of England from... 924 to 939. Mm-hmm. So in the 870s and 880s, his grandfather, mm-hmm. Alfred the Great, is still king. So there's obviously a problem here, but no one seems entirely sure what's wrong. Yeah. I mean, even an expert like Eric Christensen can only say that, quote, the question of whether this king is a misstated King Athelstan of Wessex or a glorified Athelstan slash Goodrum of East Anglia or a misnamed Alfred has never been satisfactorily resolved. Mm-hmm. Now that is the scholarly equivalent of the famous Gallic shrug. <laughs> well, I can't blame him for the Gallic shrugging it off, uh, whatever that <laughs> is. <laughs> but the only real way to iron out these problems is to assume that there was some confusion about the years of the beginning and end of Rollo's career. I mean, he does overlap slightly with Athelstan's reign, but mm-hmm. all the sources agree that by that time he was very elderly and unwell and at the end of his life. Right, hardly the sort to go rushing across the channel for a quick mop-up operation on some other king's rebels, like as a personal favor. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I don't think that Rollo's the kind of guy to do that anyway. It's pretty clear that these legends are invented to establish a link between the Normans and England that might serve a deeper political purpose. But to make sense of that, we have to return to Rollo's siege outside of Paris. So, as we said, Rollo and his men are settling down for the siege, but in this version... He now receives word that his old friend Athelstan is facing a rebellion from unfaithful lords in England. Ooh. Now, we should point out that the the most likely rebellious factions in England at this time were either Northumbrians or the Danes living in the northeast of the island. Mm -hmm. In other words, people who would historically have been more likely to ally themselves with someone like Rollo. Now, but not in this story. Mm, In this story, Rollo and Athelstan are BFFs. (laughs) And so Rollo immediately skips out on the siege of Paris to cross to England and save Athelstan's bacon. In fact, that's almost literal. I mean, part of the friendly bonding these two did during <laughs> Rollo's previous visit was that Athelstan supplied Rollo's ships with uh, lots and lots of bacon <laughs> to feed his men on their voyage. No, that's true. Uh, apparently, the Vikings and later the Normans were proverbial for their love of bacon. Proverbial? Yes. So these guys had beards, they were into fancy groomings, and they loved bacon. Uh, just, just stop right there. I can see you lining up a joke about Viking hipsters, and please don't. I wasn't. Maybe. Probably. <laughs> anyway, Rollo and his men proceed to devastate Athelstan's enemies, racking up so many victories, the leaders of the rebellion beg Rollo to reconcile them with the king. And apparently chopping off the ears and feet of Athelstan's enemies along the way, according to the quote that we started this section with. Well, that's Was again. You know, he likes to add a little drama. <laughs> well, I'm starting to get the impression that Rollo likes a little showy bloodshed himself. I mean, this has the ring of something that might actually have happened, at least to a limited degree. Limited? You mean like one ear and one foot from each other? <laughs> no, no, no. I mean, I mean, he may have made an example of a small number of people in order to make his point. From the speed at which the rebels fall into line, it looks to me like his point is made very easily. And after Mm. all, we're given the impression that Rollo's only away from Paris for a few months. Hmm. Well, I'd call that plausible. Of course, we already know these chroniclers aren't above warping their timelines to make for a more compelling story. Mm -hmm. So all's well. And, and, And if we left it at this, there'd be no real purpose to the English interlude itself. 
No, um, if we left it there. But we have more bromance stuff to deal with. <laughs> yes, we do. Um, in, in gratitude for Rolo saving the kingdom, Athelstan gives him half of it. Half of the kingdom. Oh, sure. Yeah, that may, that seems reasonable. Mm-hmm. I mean, hey, although I, should, I mean, I'm being sarcastic, but Rol- Ragnar got half a kingdom and the king's daughter just for killing a dragon. Mm. Rolo's quelling a whole rebellion here. That's got to be worth something. Yeah, this is kind of strange, and it feels like we're starting to move into legend and fantasy here, but nowhere mm-hmm. near where we're going to go in a few moments. <laughs> On the <laughs> other hand, there's certainly precedent right around this time for a very similar division of land in Britain between an Anglo-Saxon and a Norseman. Oh, you're talking about the Dane Law. I am talking about the Dane Law. I mean, it really ties into a lot of aspects of this episode, so I think it's worth mentioning. All right, so mention. All right, I will. So we've mentioned a couple times in our episodes on Ragnar that his sons are, at least in England, more well-known than he is, largely because of the attack they led on Anglo-Saxon kingdoms between the 860s and 870s. Yeah. They're usually credited with leading this thing called the Great Heathen Army that nearly eradicated Anglo-Saxon control of the island. Their Viking hordes went through the Anglo-Saxons like soft fruit through a short grandmother. What? Sorry, it's a Terry Pratchett line. That's not only gross, but it's really, it's just not appropriate for what we're doing right now. Uh, well, neither is what the Ragnarsons did to the Anglo-Saxons. <laughs> for this is the invasion where we get the claim that Ivar Ragnarsson has King Ella of Northumbria blood-eagled. Wow. And, uh, true enough. And we covered the blood-eagle in our uh, very first saga brief way mm-hmm. back when. We're on number five now, so we're really <laughs> knocking them out of the park here. <clears throat> so it eventually falls to Wessex and the leadership of Alfred the Great to fight the great heathen army to a standstill. Right, and I think that's definitely going to have to be a saga brief of its own one of these days. We seem to be hitting all around it. Well, just add that one to the list. I mean, we, we still owe one <laughs> on Gretir and Beowulf, as Ryan Somerton uh, recently pointed out on Facebook, shaming me to no end. <laughs> so in the end, uh, neither Alfred nor the Vikings could deliver a knockout blow to the opposing force. And in 878, Alfred uh, and a Viking leader named Guthrum the Old made a pact dividing the island between them. The south and west of the island would be in control of Wessex under Alfred, and the north and east would be what is called the Dane Law. Right. But there's the usual problem of making one of these pacts actually stick. Mm -hmm. The Danes are loosely organized at the best of times, and even if Guthrum was taking the truce seriously, his men were accustomed to earning a living by raiding. That's always a problem with these agreements, I think. Um, And it actually Mm -hmm. ties to Abbo's point about the ad hoc leadership style of the Vikings. Uh, mm-hmm. The leadership may be willing to make a deal, but that doesn't mean everyone else is on board. And it's very much each individual's right to make that decision for himself. So what this means is that even as European kings are being forced to accommodate these, I guess you call Scandinavian land grants all around Northern Europe, yeah. they have to deal with the complexities of potentially violent rogue elements, all while acclimating the peaceful majorities among the Scandinavians to life in the existing power structures of the continental kingdoms. Right. And that's a great point. And if you're you're kind of studying this period, that's that's one to consider. Right. And, of course, there's an observation to be made here about modern parallels in Europe. Oh, yes. Definitely. But uh, we shouldn't dwell on modern politics and right. such. So right. let's get back to We Rolo. don't do modern stuff. Uh, yeah. What's, what's good about the modern age? Um, anyway, Rollo turns down the offer of half the kingdom, which seems odd, but he says he believes that his destiny is to conquer land in Francia and make his name there. So mm-hmm. off he goes with his men and a few of Athelstan's who decide to try their luck with Rollo. Uh, but we still have what I think is a significant question to answer. Do we? What's the question? 
Well, we have this legendary bromance between the English king and Rollo, and the granting of a half-kingdom to a Scandinavian army of pagans. Mm -hmm. So to what degree is this a historical rewriting of the Alfred Guthrum Danelaw truce? Oh, I think to a pretty large degree. Oh, oh really? Mm -hmm. I was expecting more of an argument there. No, no, it lines up in a lot of particulars, but uh, Guthrum and Alfred's truce um, began to crack pretty quickly, remember? There were a lot of pressures of raids that, that you were talking about before. Now, that's right, but do you remember offhand when they reaffirmed and formalized that treaty? Well, John, it just so happens that I was teaching this today, as a matter of fact, <laughs> so I know that it was in 886, I think, right? <laughs> You taught it, didn't you? Uh, I didn't yeah, mention that particular one. I was talking about the Guthrum Alfred well, Treaty, and you know, I didn't. So, the eight eighty six formalization, the same year that Rollo would have supposedly been visiting England. Mm -hmm. It starts to feel like the early chroniclers went rooting around in the recent past for ways to magnify the role of Rollo and his proto Normans in regional affairs. And it would be tempting to say that they were trying that the chroniclers, in other words, are trying to justify the eventual conquest of England as a case of Rollo's descendants trying to take back what he'd given away. Hmm. But it doesn't entirely work, because the Athelstan-Rollo story is around by the early 11th century, which is half a century before the Battle of Hastings. And William the Bastard is merely a gleam in his father's philandering eye at that point. <laughs> Nicely put. Thank you. Uh, and of course, we know that Athelstan did have to fight some major battles to secure his kingship, uh, culminating in the Battle of Brunnenburg in 937. Hmm. And we know that, at least according to Icelandic sources, Norse and Icelandic mercenaries fought on both sides of that battle. Go Ale Skala Grims. Now, you know, I'm starting to sympathize with the scholars who don't want to deal with this as we get deeper and deeper. <laughs> and I'm sure the audience is more and more confused. I mean, it just gets more tangled the more you try to unravel all this stuff. I know. Uh, so what we can say, I think, uh, is that the chroniclers are most likely conflating the 9th century wars and truce between Alfred the Great and one Viking army the early 10th century kingship of Alfred's grandson, Athelstan, and the beginning and end of Rollo's period of political influence in the region at the head of a separate Viking army. I, even with that brief summary, I still don't know what's going on. But <laughs> all of it becomes one big mess of social, historical, creative writing is what we're saying. More or less. Mm -hmm. So wh tell me again why we decided to do this episode. <laughs> no time. Back to Paris. Part 4. Rollo returns to Paris. I do not know what I should do. Rollo has done us much harm and continues to threaten us. He destroys our land, drives away our men. Neither strong nor weak can withstand him. The people are disconsolate. Some have fled and some have been killed. There is no ox at his plow, nor peasant at the furrow. No vineyard pruned, nor field sown. Many churches have already been destroyed and laid waste. If this war continues, the land will be ravaged beyond repair. Was the Chronicler. Now this Rollo really starts to sound like a very impressive individual, doesn't he? <laughs> he does. So um, we left the Franks holed up inside their Paris barricades. Presumably there were enough Vikings left behind to keep them trapped inside the city and unable to replenish their supplies. Yep. Uh, so in the spring of 886, Rollo returns and he and his men renew their attacks. At this point, even Abo has to admit that the defenders inside Paris are suffering, uh, partly from a lack of reinforcement and food. Well, they should go to uh, they should go to England and get some bacon. I, I don't think that's an option. No? 
Uh, more importantly, they're also suffering from plague. That's not good. No, it's plague. <laughs> I know. That's why I said it's not good. Yeah, this is actually pretty typical for the period, though. I mean, disease killed more men than combat in times of war, and the mm-hmm. tactic of ransacking the surrounding area works to destroy morale and the long-term viability of Frankish control of the area. Even people who've managed to get inside the walls are going to be devastated as they watch their homes and their crops burn. Right. Now, we have to remember that Abbo's writing about the Vikings from the perspective of a hard, horrified Frankish monk. So he's interested in giving us the worst possible image of them. And that's pretty bad. Okay. So what happens in the spring exactly? Well, the defenders are ill and dispirited, and most of their leaders are dead. The Vikings, in the meanwhile, are in firm control of the area and return their attention to the city walls. Again, we don't get a lot of detail about who's in charge among the Vikings. Well, that makes sense, really. I mean, Abbo's going for the numberless horde effect, so he's going to try to depersonalize the Norsemen and treat them as leaderless masses, uh, and that works for his narrative. Mm. Uh, but the other sources are all pretty clear. Rollo's return from England somehow catches the Franks off guard again, <laughs> and they're starting to realize they haven't got a chance of stopping him. The king's advisors begin to argue that there's no solution but to make peace with Rollo. This is when Abbo's poem starts moving into the realm of magical realism in a very kind of cool way. I mean, the saints, <laughs> especially Saint Germain, are now openly fighting on the side of the Franks in kind of a Iliad style. <laughs> uh, and and it, as usually happens when you get saints involved in war, things get a little bit crazy. So we're going to cover this? <laughs> oh, I think we have to at least mention it. But, uh, you know, there's a lot of them. We won't mention them all. Uh, okay. Well, we have a few of the standard striking down the enemy type miracles. Mm-hmm. Uh, and at one point, Saint Germain actually appears on the battlefield and leads a Frankish charge that breaks up the Danish line. Yes, that's a great one. Um, I actually, I like the story, and I have to mention uh, the story of a Dane who steals an altar cover from a church during the siege. He then uses it for a blanket that night. And in the morning, he's somehow been compressed down to the size of a child, but not in a cute, cuddly kind of way. As Abbo says, who could say what became of his arteries and his thews, or how his bones and his marrow could entirely vanish, or how his entrails could fit inside such a small, narrow gut? That is so gross. (laughs) So he hasn't shrunk. He's been, like, crushed down to child size. Oh, yes. And and obviously he's dead as a result. So the, the <laughs> saints of Paris aren't screwing around here. <laughs> but uh, even with divine assistance, the Vikings are just too numerous for the defenders. Mm-hmm. They renew their assault, and this time they throw the kitchen sink at the defenders. So uh, here's Abo again. Terror enveloped the city and all its inhabitants. There was no place in the city free from fierce battle. Spears, missiles hurled by catapults shrouded the towers and fell like rain upon the fields. Great balls of lead, hardly light, large stones crashed and thudded into bucklers making them groan. Such were the constant gifts which the Vikings gave to us. No, I really like that aside. Great balls of lead, hardly light. <laughs> hardly light. In case you were unclear about how, yeah. how great balls of lead weigh. <laughs> anyway, all of this suggests that the Vikings were using siege engines pretty effectively, which is definitely not what we usually think of when it comes to Viking raids. They generally prefer hit-and-run tactics. 
Right. Now, that's true for smaller groups, but some of these 9th century armies are, are well, they're just that. They're armies. Mm-hmm. Right. There's even a section of the text that describes the making and use of Testudo-style battering rams. The Roman Testudo? I mean, you, yeah. the, the armor-covered rams? Yep. Yep. The ones that kind of look like turtles. Yeah. Oh, that's so cool. Now, I didn't know that they actually use those against Paris, and, and that one does definitely show up in the uh, the Viking show. Right. Now, as I said, I think this is – it's pretty clear that Abo is one of their sources. Yeah. Uh, but remember, we are dealing with Abo here, right? It might be true, but it's hard to be sure when he's just borrowing images from classical literature. Uh, but speaking of the show, we do have to address a major difference between the siege of Paris on the show and this one being described in Abo's poem. Which is what? Well, Rollo and the Vikings aren't going to win this one. Ooh, yeah. That's a little disappointing, actually. Sorry. Uh, but it does make sense. The show's version is a conflation of two sieges. It's got Ragnar's successful attack in the 840s and the one that ended in a draw in the 880s where Rollo was in charge. Right. And we're dealing with the draw here. Just as the Franks are losing hope, a band of 600 knights sent by King Charles arrives to push the Vikings back. They haven't got the numbers to break the siege completely, though. And with the Vikings bringing in reinforcements every day, the decision is made to reach a truce. And this is more or less what we see in the show, although there it's presented more as a French defeat. Right. But again, they've conflated those two attacks from the ninth century. Exactly. And most of the later sources are pretty clear that the Franks are more or less begging Rollo for peace. Uh, but of course, they're biased in favor of the Normans, so they're not necessarily any more reliable. Dudo says that the advisors to King Charles recognized that the whole of Francia was bordering on annihilation. And so they mm. plead with Charles to find some way of placating Rollo. Yeah, uh, Wass's version of this seems to be pretty closely connected to Dudo's, but his version includes that more poetic lament from the king about the costs of war, which we open the section with. Yes. So Rollo is now in a position to command the terms of peace with the Franks, and all he has to do is accept the offer of peace. Ah, but remember what happened to Rollo's brother, though. Mm-hmm. Rollo knows all about offers of peace from kings. Yeah, and he's got reasons to be suspicious. Several of the sources mention underhanded tactics by the Franks during the peace negotiations themselves. Right. Uh, Wasp, for example, says that the Franks made peace with Rollo, then attacked him again once the truce was declared, oh. and had to beg for peace a second time when he defeated them yet again. See? Rollo's learning. Mm-hmm. Now, eventually, the price for peace is to be the lands that Rollo has already conquered. But it's going to take a while to get the lands of Ruin back to productive farming, because he's devastated it pretty badly. So, well, so to, to be it. fair, Ruin is mainly devastated because of Rollo and his men. Oh, without doubt. Yeah. Uh, but nevertheless, as Rollo points out, he can't be a good Frankish count if he's forced to keep raiding his neighbors to find food while his lands slowly become productive That's again. That's a good point. Well, fair enough. So the king offers to add Flanders to Rollo's land to provide food, uh-huh. but Rollo refuses, quote, because the land is poor and would never yield much. Oh, take that, Belgium. Poor Belgium. <laughs> anyway, the king's pretty broken by this point, so he just gives Rollo Brittany instead. Now, what's interesting is that this 886 siege, the one that the Norsemen technically didn't win, mm. uh, it turns out to be the greater victory in the long run. Uh, they don't get to sack Paris, but they're given a major concession of territory, especially the region mm-hmm. surrounding Ruin. Rather than getting back on their ships with a pile of treasure and heading home, uh, they get to stay in the Frankish lands and start what amounts more or less to their own fiefdom. It's true. Uh, the Ragnar raid was a kind of get-rich-quick scheme by comparison. Mm-hmm. Now, even though the Vikings are essentially faceless monsters in Abo's account, we have to allow for the trauma that he felt as an eyewitness to the siege. 
Right. And remember, he was inside the walls the whole time. Well, so he says, right? And there's no reason to disbelieve him about it. Well, he's got the plague marks to, uh, to, to prove <laughs> it. Um, it's also not surprising that he's not a huge fan of the Vikings if he was there. Not at all. Uh, but the rest of our sources aren't as tied to that Frankish perspective. Mm-hmm. As Rollo's legacy becomes less about his time as a marauding Viking and more about his status as the progenitor of the line of the Dukes of Normandy, we're going to see him sort of pushed to the forefront of the story and rehabilitated into a suitable figure for a French dynasty. Part 5. Rollo of Normandy. Wealth will be showered on Rollo. Riches given to him. Francia, you will be fruitful in your fortunate offspring, formed of the seed commingled of noble Christian believers. There will you breed and give birth, and, pregnant, bring forth kings and archbishops, dukes and counts, and nobles of high rank, under whose rule, Christ-led, all the world will rejoice and prevail. Dudo of San Quentin. So Dudo likes to lay it on a little thick, doesn't he? He does. He really does. <laughs> I mean, that is a thick layer of icing. It's it's hard to read that uh, without kind of either going overboard or laughing. At it. <laughs> so um, now, how do we get from the sieges of Paris, which Rollo isn't even mentioned, into his instatement as Count of Rouen and Proto Duke of Normandy? Well, we should say once again that we're trying to cobble together a life story from a collection of sources that can't agree on anything about the man in question. So there are going to be a few gaps. Hmm. Right? There isn't a clear chronology, really. That's fair. Um, and it's almost certainly true that Rollo and his sons were never actually called dukes anyway. I mean, one of the earliest chroniclers of the Normans is Flodard of Reims. And he's a stickler for accurate titles, so he calls Rollo Princepe which roughly means um, something like chieftain or lord. Right, and of course a title like chieftain would make a lot of sense to the Normans themselves, yeah. since the Norwegian title Jarl meant about the same thing. And both of those mean about the same thing as the English title Earl, which is cognate, yeah, sure. of course. Uh, so the basics are covered pretty easily through a royal act uh, issued around 911 by Charles the Simple. It's called the Treaty of <laughs> Sinclair de... Oh, Jesus, this is one of these friggin' names... Uh, Sinclair Sir Ept? Yep. Uh, okay. <clears throat> uh, sure. So the basics are going to be covered pretty easily through a royal act, which was issued in around 911 by Charles the Simple. It's referred to as the Treaty of Sinclair Sir Ept. We don't know exactly how it was worded. Uh, Flodard tells us that it gave, quote, certain lands bordering on the seacoast, along with the city of Rouen, to the control of Rollo and his Vikings. Nothing about titles or clear borders, though. No, uh, and there's nothing that suggests that this treaty was seen as especially unusual in its age. The historian David Bates is really the expert on early Normandy, and he argues that, uh, quote, the grant of lands to Rollo and his followers must be seen as a typical response of the harassed Western European ruling classes to the Viking menace. Oh, now I like that, um, because mm-hmm. that's more or less what we're seeing and what we were talking about earlier with the Dane law. I mean, these little fiefdoms or duchies or kingdoms or whatever you want to call them, they're cropping up everywhere around this time as the Vikings are kind mm-hmm. of making inroads into new territories. But Rollo's not relying entirely on a royal land grant to establish his power base. No, he's a clever fellow. Mm-hmm. Uh, a number of sources tell us that at some point, probably shortly before he, t- he formally takes control of Rouen or the future Normandy, 
Rollo marries a nobleman's daughter to cement a truce with the Franks. Which is a very Germanic way of going about things. I mean, creating alliances through marriages is a pretty typical move, so much so that it's got its own Anglo-Saxon word, Frithewebe, which becomes synonymous with wife. So, Mm -hmm. John, who's the lucky lady that marries old Rollo? The shirtless Clive Standen. Absolutely. Um, She is a lucky lady, but uh, as you're tired of hearing me say it, uh, we're not entirely sure who she is. Uh, so many in some versions, as we said earlier, her name is Popa, mm-hmm. and she's the daughter of the Count of Rent. But William of Malmesbury and a couple of other sources identify her as Gisela or Gisla, the daughter of King Charles the Simple. Ah, so these are the sources the show is using. It looks that way. Uh, so here's how William explains the marriage in his Chronicle of the Kings of England. Okay. Charles, constrained by Rollo through a succession of calamities, conceded to Rollo the part of Gaul, which is at present called Normandy. Charles, repeatedly reeling from unsuccessful conflicts, that fortune gave him nothing, resolved, after consulting his nobility, that it was advisable to make a show of royal munificence where he was unable to repel injury. And so Charles gave Normandy to Rollo with his daughter Gisla, who was the surety of peace and pledge of the treaty. Now, if ever there was to be a voice for the reading of William of Malmesbury's Chronicle of the Kings of England, <laughs> I think that was it. Mm-hmm. Well done, John. Now, <laughs> that whole description sounds pretty straightforward, but I think you left out that William is pretty contemptuous of Charles for this move. Oh, yeah. Yeah, here he adds the line, He, Charles, was at this time far advanced in years and, consequently, easily inclined to peaceful measures. <laughs> well, it's hard to be an old king. Oh, it's definitely hard to be an old king, especially at those times. Uh, especially mm-hmm. when these damned Vikings don't get off your lawn. Well, <laughs> Normandy's kind of a big lawn. Huge lawn. <laughs> but that's even more annoying. Get off my huge lawn. But uh, <laughs> this deal actually seems to offer something important to both sides. Rollo gains a base of operations, his own lands and a title, and even a marriage alliance with his new French neighbors. Charles and the Franks, on the other hand, gained a strong bulwark against the further Viking attacks. Giving the land facing north to Rollo means that he's going to have to be the one to propel future raiders, and not Charles and the yeah. Franks. Pretty smart. Right, and as we said, this isn't unusual as a strategy. Right, Giving up a little land to a group of Norsemen was kind of a way of setting a thief to catch a thief. Right, but that only works if the new neighbors actually abide by the truces and don't just attack you again in the spring. You just set me up for a segue, didn't you? Yeah, I thought you might like a little help. <laughs> Thank you. Yeah, no problem. <laughs> well, so Charles is well aware of the Vikings' reputation for breaking their word. So he tries to force Rollo into behavior. <laughs> Good luck. Right. Yeah, well, the marriage is going to be part of that, but he adds a couple of other stipulations as well. And let me read this section. It was then determined by treaty that Rollo should be baptized and hold that country with the king as his lord. Ah, so now we're getting to the full conversion story. None of this Anglo-Saxon hanging out with Athelstan stuff. Mm -hmm. Now, we haven't actually gotten to the full pledge of loyalty to the king yet. Okay. The inbred and untamable ferocity of the man may be imagined. (laughs) For on receiving this gift, the bystanders suggested to Rollo that he ought to kiss the foot of his benefactor. But... Disdaining to kneel down, he seized the king's foot and dragged it to his mouth as he stood erect. (laughs) Because of this, the king fell on his back, and the Normans began to laugh, while the Franks became indignant. But Rollo apologized for his shameful conduct by saying it was the custom of his country. (laughs) 
<laughs> all right. First of all, I don't think I'm alone in saying that this is my favorite roller story. Second, <laughs> well, it's, it suggests, I think, a certain lack of reverence for the formality of Frankish tradition. Oh, absolutely. <laughs> I mean, second of all, I, I don't know in mm-hmm. what country it's the custom to grab someone by their foot and flip them over. The- <laughs> Doesn't make any sense. Uh, anyway, it feels like a story that would be right at home in the sagas, and that's why I like it. Um, it mm-hmm. feels authentic in that regard. <laughs> well, I think it's a classic Viking-style prank. Yeah. I mean, it's a little childish, but it also cashes in on the Franks' prejudices about the savagery and barbarity of the Norwegians, mm-hmm. right? As you're saying, claiming that knocking the king on his royal posterior is the custom where I come from allows Rollo to get away with disrespecting the king. Right? And it puts them, if I may, on a different footing with each Ooh. other. <laughs> <laughs> come to Saga Thing for the puns. Yes. So um, so if we ignore the Anglo-Norman propaganda of later generations, we still have to ask what sort of chieftain or lord or jarl or count or whatever we want to call him uh, did Rollo turn out to be? I mean, suddenly he finds himself in charge of a nominally Christian land and married to a Christian and with, with a Christian king who may have been his father-in-law. Well, and all of this is happening in languages he probably doesn't speak very sure. well. And maybe the whole tripping the king thing is extreme, but there had to have been some real miscommunications in the early going. Well, he and his men seem to acclimate linguistically pretty quickly. Nevertheless, I'm assuming he'd occasionally get a little homesick for wherever it was he came from. Pining for the fjords. Oh, pining possibly for the, the steppes or maybe the moors. We never did decide where he came from originally. Perhaps, but we've got another matter here. William of Malmesbury also mentioned a conversion to Christianity. He did indeed. Mm-hmm. Well, one element of Rollo's life that the Viking show writers probably got right is his casual attitude towards baptism and Christianity. Um, mm-hmm. I mean, the scene where he gets uh, baptized is hilarious. Uh, you might remember mm-hmm. from season one of the show, Rollo volunteered to be baptized at the court of King Alla in, North um- in Northumbria. Now, no one seems to take it very seriously except for Floki, and Rollo seems to treat the whole thing as a joke. It's entirely likely that the historical Rollo might have been doing something similar. If he was attacking the Frankish coast in the late 9th century, he might well have been playing the whole baptism game with the locals for an edge. Oh, yeah, yeah. I mean, some of the sources for this period imply that the Norsemen in Francia were getting washed for baptism so often that their fingertips were getting pruned. Yeah. Yeah, that sounds like you're going to you're that sounds like you're trying to be funny, but I it's pretty accurate for what was going on. <laughs> All right, see if this strikes you as amusing. Uh, the 9th century Swiss monk, Notker the Stammerer, writes a story about the problem of marauding Vikings who regarded baptism as a sort of odd quirk among the Franks. Uh, the scholar Janet Nelson cites Notker's story. On one occasion, on baptizing a group of Northmen, as linen garments were not ready in sufficient number, one of the older men was offered a cut-up and re-sewn shirt and angrily said, I've gone through this washing business here some 20 times already and have always before been given clothes of perfect whiteness. <laughs> I love stories like that. I mean, that's the brutal reality of the situation. I have no doubt that that is an authentic account of something that happened. Um, there, there are a lot of examples of that kind of thing happening in England, too. I mean, some members of the Ragnarsson's army in the 870s also got baptized while making truces with the Saxons, and they also treat it as a sort of kind of free pass. Right. Now, the problem was pretty widespread. I mean, there's even an early 10th century exchange of letters between Pope John X and the Archbishop of Rouen about this problem, uh, which is right around when Rollo was taking control of the yeah. area, we should say. Uh, the Archbishop asks the Pope for, and I quote, 
advice concerning those who have been rebaptized and then returned to the customs of paganism like sows to the mire or dogs returning to their own vomit. I, I love the Archbishop voice. It's perfect. Um, <laughs> but, uh, but you have been bringing up that phrase about dogs and vomit since grad school. And somehow <laughs> you finally managed a way to work that reference into the podcast. I, I, I do you. love dog vomit stories. And there are a lot of them in medieval uh-huh. writing. But stay focused. Focused on what? We've been wandering all over for... Well, no. If the archbishop is writing about Rollo and his men, which is actually pretty oh. likely, it suggests that the Frankish Christians know that the whole conversion thing's a sham. Well, a sham to the to the Vikings, but not to them. Mm-hmm. You know, they take it seriously. Mm-hmm. Um, there's no question that the creation of the Norman state is a military and political decision. And, and if they're aware of it, then it means it's not an evangelical decision. It's just okay. purely military and political. Yeah. Yeah. But it's worth saying that the frustrations of church officials indicate that everyone involved knows that these are conversions of convenience. Sure, yeah. Now, we've talked before about how difficult conversion really was, even if your heart was in it. Mm-hmm. Remember Halford's saga, when Halford composes wistful verses about having to teach his heart to hate Odin. Oh, I love that stuff. Yes, exactly. And we have to remember that these conversions are happening all over the place in the 9th and 10th centuries, not just in Normandy mm-hmm. and England. Right. And there are a number of reasons for the arrival of Vikings all over the map in this era. Mm-hmm. Uh, We've talked about the consolidation of power in Norway under Harald Fairhair, but there are also power vacuums being created by a century of Viking attacks all over the north. Over the course of a couple of generations, Norsemen and Danes are establishing new bases of power all over the place and rubbing elbows with Christians whenever they do so. And the Christians are also sending missionaries into Scandinavian strongholds at the same time. I mean, it's Mm -hmm. almost a perfect circumstance for the spread of religion. Especially when the old religion isn't as strongly held as it had once been. Say, for example, if people are being uprooted from their ancestral homes and moving to new places with new traditions to learn. Right, and those baptisms, they may start out as a joke to the originals, but uh, eventually the joke's on the pagans, as many of them, and even more of their children, come to join Christian society. This is exactly the lament you hear from, from immigrants to new countries all over the world, isn't it? All over history, really. The kids don't want to hear about the old ways. They just want to hang out with their friends and wear blue jeans and cut their hair and carry Frankish swords. Yeah, yeah, those Christians, they love blue jeans and Frankish swords. <laughs> well, not all of us. <laughs> okay, but uh, religion isn't the only tension that's going to exist between the Franks and the Normans. No, and uh, David Bates sums it up quite nicely. What was to become the Duchy of Normandy came into existence within a society which was itself highly unstable and in the middle of profound social change. Contrary to the story created by early chroniclers and historians, there was nothing very certain about the first years of the province's existence. Which suggests that Rollo's got a very tough job ahead of him. Absolutely. But historically, at least, he makes a pretty successful show of things. And by the time Rollo turns things over to his son, William Longsword, in about 927, the lands under his control are reasonably prosperous and reasonably stable. Yeah, but even then, that process of going native, as you mentioned, it's going to cause a lot of trouble. I mean, William's first real test is a rebellion from within his father's supporters. It seems that some mm. of the older ex-Vikings thought that William was too gallicized and soft to lead a people who still identified as Danes. Uh, but that's going mm-hmm. beyond the boundaries of the story that we're trying to tell right now. So we'll stop. Yeah, yeah. Um, Rollo's descendants are, like, as we said, worth an episode all on mm-hmm. their own. And maybe we'll return to Normandy sometime soon. But for now, our story ends with Rollo, 
who lives into old age and actually lives in retirement for several years after ceding power to his son. When Rollo finally dies of old age in 932 or 33, he's already well on his way to being seen as the respectable founder and the foundation of a dynasty. It's a complicated legacy, as you can tell from the winding story that we've told here. On the one hand, Rollo's story is really about an exiled warrior who happens to be bloodthirsty and a little bit lucky at the same time. But then again, that's how a lot of dynasties and even empires get started, so nothing surprising there. But I think there's uh, there's also still an awareness of that complexity in the way Rollo's remembered today. Hmm. The, the modern inscription on his tomb reads, In the heart of this church rests Rollo, father and first duke of Normandy, which was destroyed and established by him through hard work. He was put to rest, wearied by his age of more than 80 years in the year 933. That's ultimately Rollo's legacy. He's the man who devastated northern France and then began the work of building it back Mm, up again. I like that. Tear it down, build it back up. That's a man for you. (laughs) So we finally buried Rollo. And I think we should probably leave it there or this thing is going to go on and on and never end. Fair enough. So we hope you've enjoyed getting to know Rollo Mm -hmm. with us. Uh, I know I learned much more than I thought I would when we set out to produce this episode. Oh, me too. It's been very, very fun checking this mm-hmm. uh, this part of history out, especially since uh, we don't spend a lot of time, you and I, in the French Chronicles. It's true. Yeah. So there's a lot of really interesting stuff that we found here. Um, now, I should ask this. Uh, is it too late to warn our audience about spoilers? Uh, yeah. Yeah, it is. No. It's much too late. Sorry, folks. Now, if you'd like to let us know what you think about this episode or where you think we were too easy or too hard on Rollo and his chroniclers, you can contact us through our Facebook page, Saga Thing Podcast, through our Twitter account, Saga Thing Pod, or by email at sagathingpodcast at gmail.com. Or if you prefer, you can pass us a note in study hall. Sure. Um, and remember, if you're watching the new Viking season, that John will be live tweeting during the episodes. So pay attention to that. Right. So, if a show full of large bearded men killing each other is entertaining enough for you, check your Twitter feed for a technology-challenged academic offering unnecessary literary and historical context for the action. Oh, John, we've really got to work on your promotional skills. <laughs> um, no, I hope everyone enjoys the new season of Vikings. Um, we'll be back soon with the conclusion of the saga of Finn Bogey the Strong. All right, so we're off to dance naked on the beach with Rollo. Bye for now. Why did you do that? Just the handle of the leg. Good night, myself.